Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemong podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, leading experts Mohamed Moti and Saad Usmani discuss key advances in myeloma treatment from the 2022 EHA annual meeting. The experts highlight several topics, including the determination trial, the role of transplant, and novel emerging immunotherapies in the field. Hi, I'm Mohamed Moti from the Sorbonne University and Saint Antoine Hospital in Paris. And it is my great pleasure to be today in person at the EHA 2022 with my friend Saad Usmani. Uh, and it, it, it's so exciting to be together again, uh, but also to see all of these advances ongoing in the field of multiple myeloma. Sad, I think we can spend hours and hours debating this, but don't worry, we'll be on time. We'll do only a few minutes about the key advances in this field. And maybe I can start with the first line, and I think the major highlight is the determination study uh, which was presented uh, last week at ASCO uh, by Dr. Richardson. Uh, we'll hear about it uh, soon uh, as a late-breaking abstract, but I think the news is all over the place. And to make a long story short, it looks like a transplant gives you more PFS, but at the end of the day, overall survival is the same. And well, the interpretation apparently is the glass is half full or half empty. What are your thoughts, my friend? I think this, there has been so much debate, you know, in social media, amongst ourselves, even over the, over the past few days, um, about how do we interpret these data. Um, now, determination results have been long awaited because this was a sister study to the original IFM 2009 study. The only difference, you know, between, you know, besides the early versus delayed transplant question was the determination trial looked at length continuously. Um, so, you know, there has always been, you know. And this is true because the IFM study you're referring to gave it only for one year and that's a major difference. Yes. So, um, you know, the, there is a camp, you know, of, of believers in autologous stem cell transplantation that they give you the best likelihood of, of the longest PFS frontline. And there is the other camp where well, we're having all of these advances in the field. Um, so even if you get that PFS benefit, what if the overall survival is the same? So, so that's kind of been the debate. So, so with that in mind, you know, the follow-up on, on determination is only six years. But you and I know that the median OS for myeloma has now advanced to eight to 10 years. Which is good news. Which is excellent news. But, but then, you know, it also leads us to the question, you know, is six years enough of a follow-up to start seeing the OS benefit? The way that I look at this data is, regardless of wherever you are in the world, the, the available therapies matter for that OS. So for us in US, in Europe, where our patients have options, if it's a standard risk patient, you know, you still want to show them the PFS benefit if they opt out. 20 months plus. 21 months, you know, that's, that's huge. That is, yeah, that's impressive almost two years of PFS benefits. So, so there are parts of the world where that may be the best bet for your patient is that first line. 
but in in you know with with embarrasses of riches you know in in the west i think it's a you luxury know debate, exactly right? it's a luxury debate so so if we're thinking about okay if i'm going to treat my patient today what will their options be four or five years from now and just looking at that pipeline and we'll talk about that too you know by specific carties or you know new small molecules you know does it matter but so, one quick question sad because you're alluding to the future so let's anticipate how relevant are the determination uh, data now that we are using quadruplets and maybe doublet maintenance so that's that is that is where i was i was going to okay so so this is where i think the early versus delayed transplant uh, you know come comes into question because by the time we are the pfs is reading out you know we already have all these advances absolutely if we wait for os to finally read out because both the arms don't have the median os read out yet right so so what you can say is we don't know but they are similar at this time so so you know this question of early versus delayed transplant i do not think it's going to be answered so so this is where i think you know joe mckeel made the point well let's have that discussion with the patient give them the option and also share with them you know what's what's coming in the future and and help them decide i buy that argument for standard risk patients you know i'm i'm okay with that argument even though i'm i'm a transplant person i uh, think we are roughly on the same line yes. but i like the issue that the question will never be answered yes because i don't know if you remember but in one of my first ash in 1996 there was already a study from the IFM called the Siam study never published actually looking into late versus you know <laughs> de delayed versus early transplant but that's another story so um, so high risk patients however you know i would make the case that you can't dilly dally there okay that's where you know studies have shown early intervention what we do in that first year of diagnosis is important trying to get them to as deep a response as possible and that's where i don't think you know we we can we can have that kind of a debate at this moment in time until we figure out what would be the best approach for high risk in enrichment design trials so the key word is determination to cure yes let's move now because you alluded to the bispecific and i would put this under the global picture of immune therapy i think at this eha at asco at ash bispecific is really the keyword i'm not convinced that all of these bispecific will make it maybe one day who knows we'll be lucky where do you see the field moving with these bispecific i mean they work amazingly in the relapse refractory setting we know that even if you've been treated with a bcma targeting agent you can still respond to a bispecific so what's your take on this all right so i i'm going to bring up our previous discussion into this okay up until this point up until maybe 2 years ago high dose melphalan was our best single agent that was our our rationale to say hey you know there's backbone. a role backbone right so we can no longer say it's our best single agent oh. okay because the car t cell therapies and the bi specifics in the relapse setting are giving such high response rates in in patients who are refractory to everything so i agree with you i mean there's a lot of excitement about bcma directed bi specific 
specifics, their combinations with anti-C38s. Absolutely. And and the GPRC5D, you know, and Sevastomab, which is the FCRH5. Um, and both LRAN and Teclistomab have shown that in prior ADC or CAR-T patients with BCMA, over 50% of the patients respond. Just to clarify, Elran, Elranatamab, guys. Elranatamab, yes. Yes, and this is really a, a, a great bispecific. Let me be provocative, Saad. Uh, you probably remember, we all remember, the daratumumab single agent, mm -hmm. but it's history. Who speaks today about single agent? So where is the future bispecific? Do you believe it's single agent or probably will move into combination? I think it, it will move into combination. So, so in fact, there is some early data being combined with DARA in DARA refractory patients. And, and there appears to be an overall response rate of 80%. So it's not just single agent, but if you're throwing in DARA tumumab, now the caveat here is that DARA may not be working on the myeloma but maybe the immunomodulatory effects because we know Getting that. rid of the immunosuppressive cells. There you go. So I, I think that mechanism of action is what is coming into play in that combination. It's amazing. So CAR T cells, we're talking about immune therapy. Lots of excitement. Every patient I meet, even the MGUS ones, to be honest, why don't we get a CAR T cell to eradicate the disease? Maybe it's lots of hope, maybe some hype. The reality is that we do not have access, you know, in a large fashion to CAR T cells. So how do you see bispecific and CAR T cells? Because I think bispecific can be a very nice bridge to CAR T cells. While waiting, while, you know, they, they, they can be very useful. I believe so. And, you know, I mean, teclistomab data is already published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Absolutely. You know, over the... Fantastic weekend. paper by Professor Moreau and colleagues, but it's an international effort and you are the senior author. Yes. We're seeing, thank you, thank you. We're seeing a median PFS of almost a year. And, and very similar kind of people, uh, patient population to the karma. Silta cell, probably, you know, I don't think those kind of results with Cartitude 1 will, will be replicated by, by its peers right now, but the future may change. But let's be optimistic. But, yeah, but let's be optimistic. I've, I do feel, the, you know, as we shorten the duration of car production, as we, you know, marry the hype with the hope, and create more slots that patients can get, yes, the one and done approach is still going to be preferred by a lot of patients. And but shortening is gonna be a reality. Yes. Our Chinese colleagues are already doing them in just a couple of days, so it's gonna happen. It's going to happen, and then it will be up to whether we can you know, replicate that at our individual institutions and do a point of care. Um, in the meanwhile, however, if I have a patient in front of me and I have the OP and they need treatment right away, bispecifics would likely be the way to go. What do you think about antibody drug conjugate, just to conclude? So antibody drug conjugates, um, you know, the big challenge has been, you know, the off-target side effects with belentamab, with the eye, you know, we've been talking about the this for, for, you know, three, four years now. 
the, some of the data that we're seeing at this Congress right now is if you back off of the dose, less frequent schedule, even in earlier lines of treatment. So, you know, Professor Evangelos Tarpos is- I know, and the elderly population combining population. it with image. Actually, it, it reminds me of the story of, you know, 20 years ago, it's peripheral neuropathy to bortezomib. And we were very anxious, we were very worried. But progressively and rapidly, we learned how to deal with it, playing on the dose once weekly, subcute for bortezomib, but also maybe widening the duration between, maybe it's gonna happen for Belantamab. I think we've been neglecting a little bit I, I think there is still hope because, you know, we're still figuring out the optimal partners, optimal dosing and schedule. And it looks like that 1.9 milligram per kilogram dose may be the sweet spot. And, you know, maybe giving it for every four or every eight weeks might be the way to go when you're combining with other mechanisms of actions. Fantastic, the future looks We have covered brilliant. everything. We have covered everything. I don't know if we've covered everything, but one thing for sure is that it is very exciting. And I'm so glad, Sad, we met again yes. in person. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. Take care, guys. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.